Welcome to the next episode of Splitting Cases with Pointy and the Moose. Maybe about a year and a bit ago, we started going to trivia on a Tuesday night, and we got to know this guy pretty well via his excellent hosting of trivia, but he is a multifaceted man. He does many, many things. He's an entertainment writer and an author in his own right. I'll let him tell you about the rest. Nick Milligan. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers. Welcome. It's an honour to be here splitting a case mm. with you good gentlemen. I met you guys through music and movie trivia. You were... Uh, champions at one point. The trophy, by the way, is up there on top of the uh, the TV case. If you can, see that's that's in a very prominent position. Very prominent that's perfect. position. We're very proud of that trophy. <laughs> oh, it should be. It should be. It's uh, the upper echelon of trivia in the Hunter, really. If not, if not the world, it is. <laughs> Let's go with the world. So, tell us about yourself, a bit more. Well, um, yeah, I guess my background uh, is music journalism, and I've been doing that since about two thousand and two as a young uni student. So, yeah, many years. Uh, indulging my music nerdness, basically. Going to gigs and interviewing people. And but that turned into a bit more um, of a serious project outside of the newspaper with uh, your own book? Yes, yes. I, uh, for about the last three and a half years or so, I was working on a debut novel, which I launched late last year, uh, called Enormity, which I guess is uh, inspired by uh, my time in the music industry. It's a bit of a satire of the of the music industry, in fact. And it's about a fictional rock band, so it's very much rooted in sex, drugs and rock and roll, if you excuse the pun. Nice. So, what topic did you choose for today and why? It was hard to pick any one particular band, or, you know, it's because I'm a pretty big fan of, of, of many, many bands, but given that very recently Australian music has lost two of its greats in uh, both Doc Neeson of The Angels and Jim Keyes of The Masters Apprentices, uh, I thought it would be appropriate to talk about Aussie rock. Well, I thought we might break it down by decades because it's such a massive topic, but we are kind of inspired by the fact that Doc and Jim have passed recently. Have you had any experiences with either of them, being an entertainment journalist yourself? I never got to interview Jim, but I did interview Doc a few times, and I did have the honour of uh, going out drinking with him one night. (laughs) It was good. It all stemmed because I, I managed to get an interview with him. I was a pretty fresh young journalist, and at that time I used to do mountains of research because I wanted to be really polished. And I still do research, of course, but mm. back then I used to, you know, practically read their whole whole biography. Yeah. And uh, so I was just very well well versed in in his career and the career of the Angels. And when I eventually got him on the phone, I asked him some really you know particular questions about very specific things and. He really got into it. I think he was very impressed that someone had gone to all the trouble. So mm. we had this long conversation. And, and at the end of it, he said, oh, look, if you're coming along to the Newcastle gig, which at that time was Doc Neeson's Angels. It was just him and one other member. Yeah. Because um, he obviously had a bit of a tense relationship with the Brewster Brothers over the years. Well, of course, the Brewster Brothers are performing with um, the Screaming Jets front. Dave Gleeson. Yeah, Dave yeah. Gleeson. Yeah. There's, I think there's more versions of the Angels than, than Boney M at the moment. But... Um, <laughs> Yes, he had Doc Meeson's Angels at that particular time. And so they played at Panthers and it was a good show. I went along and anyway, he'd arranged for me to come back to stage and say hello after the show. 
when I got back there, I realised he hadn't really remembered who I was. Um, <laughs> I said, "Oh, just liked our interview." He's like, "No, which one are you again?" But oh, that's <laughs> but still, awesome. But still, he was uh, it was really lovely and like chatted to me. He was very generous and. Um, he said, oh, we're going to go out for a drink. And I don't think he was drinking alcohol because I think he'd given it up years before, but he was going out anyway to, to sort of kick on. And he said, we're going to go down to this pub, Finnegan's, you want to come along? So I, of course, bounded down there as the first one there. And, uh, yeah, he turned up in a, in a little side room there and, and there till close, basically, just, mm-hmm. just chatting to him and about music and things. And, yeah, I was very impressed by him. He was a, a lovely guy. It's a, that sounds like an amazing experience because they do say never meet your heroes and when I assume when you're talking to people you get the the absolute gamut of personalities between really really lovely and absolute f wits but um, it, it sounds nice that someone so high profile and someone such le- such a legend was so lovely to you yeah. I mean, I think it's always the people, the, the nicest artists are always the ones that have, have had a long career. They've been, they've been around the traps and yeah, um, and they've got nothing to prove, basically. And, well, I mean, some of those bands that played in, were quite high profile in the 70s had a terrible fucking time in the late 80s, early 90s, had to do contracting and had to really eat humble pie, essentially. And then mm. love, luckily that late 90s early 2000s classic rock started becoming more of a thing and mm. getting out of that era of nothingness and they really appreciated it yeah yeah i mean i think um you know and newcastle's probably always been a really good town to dock as well oh totally um working class towns were and that particular night he was in a really good mood and happy to be there and yeah we would come back eventually with the, the full lineup of the angels they did mm. do a, a tour with the brewsters and uh yeah, I mean, he had a bit of a troubled time of it as well. He, of course, um, was quite injury-stricken throughout most of his career, but mm. there was one injury in particular. He was in a car accident, and I think he was in traffic on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Oh, Jesus. And he got rear-ended, and uh, basically, I think he, he broke his back, essentially, and had to go through years and years of re- rehabilitation. And a lot of these music projects he'd worked on on the side. I think he had one band called, I think not called Red Phoenix, Hmm. the name of the band and he uh made a few career attempts uh, to sort of come back and and release original music and that particular injury basically kept him bedridden for a long time so hmm. yeah you know but he was back on his feet at that time and in really really good spirits and uh the second time i interviewed him was um, he was a part of the countdown tour playing newcastle entertainment center he was a part of that lineup at one stage um they had a, I think they did a few nights of the countdown at Newcastle Entertainment Centre, and I remember Rick Springfield headlined one, I mm. believe, unless that was a long way to the top, but I think it was... No, I think he was with Countdown, the countdown. there's a whole zoot thing. Yeah, yeah. And, um, of course, yeah, Daryl Cotton, of course, um, lead singer of Zoot, passed away a couple of years ago. And I feel bad for Russell Morris because, of course, he was touring with the trio Cotton, Keys and Morris, and it's it's only Morris left standing now. yeah. So I, I feel for him because that was a you know quite a, a long term touring project. Yeah, God, yeah. The three of them collaborating and doing each other's songs and and whatnot. So he's lost two of his brothers. So yeah, I do feel for Russell Morris at the moment, who's also a really really lovely, lovely yeah. guy. So yes, yeah. To lose to lose two greats so quickly, both to cancer, both at the age of sixty seven. It's funny because well. Doc Doc just released a single a couple of. Months ago, the the walking in the rain, the Fander and Young song. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I hadn't heard that. I, I know. I think he was his last live performance at that tribute night to him at the Enmore Theatre. Yeah, and he got up and, um, 
It was a shame. I think I think it was pretty well known. He was having a hard time. Oh yeah, cancer. absolutely. Yeah. So it probably didn't come as a great surprise when when we heard he passed away. But uh, he definitely gave it a fair shake. You know, he was still he was still oh, performing shit, yeah. on stage until very recently. So yeah. Because Doc did Evander and Young Sung, Walking in the Rain, we should go back and maybe do this by decade. Easy Beat's one of the first bands I could think of, Pointy. Yeah, well, there's a few more around that time. So I guess the Easy Beat's are the, the one that comes to mind for me immediately as well. But also Johnny O'Keefe, sort of towards late 50s, uh, 60s, had a really big impact. And most people would, would know, you know, with Rage, with E doing uh, the version of Wild One. Which was uh, pretty iconic, I'm guessing, for the three of us. Uh, we're probably all roughly around the same age, so rage oh, yeah. would have been a, a big thing. To a certain extent, most Australians at some point in their very early life were terrified by the opening of rage until they <laughs> learned to love it. I was never terrified. It was uh, always entertaining. That might have been a me thing. <laughs> Perhaps. It was, it was definitely trippy for a young, a young brain to process the opening credits of rage. Oh, yeah. Oh god! If yeah. you went into sort of electronic music or anything, it was uh, didn't make any any sense, vis- any sense. visually or, or sonically. And sometimes the clips that you watched didn't make any sense either. So maybe it was a good introduction. Yeah, there was, I mean, when you watched Early Morning Rage, uh, I believe it would have had a classification system of some sort. But some of them, some of the you know, there was some dark stuff on there. Oh wow! I remember being a bit creeped out by Alice Cooper's Poison video, actually, mm. with like the kind of woman spider kind of imagery and. That was quite creepy, but of course not Aussie rock, so I won't mention it. Um, but we digress. We digress. Go, yeah. let's, let's go back in time. we should start with because simply like yes Johnny O'Keefe but Johnny O'Keefe was kind of like still more of the bandstand era the kind of yeah it was more sort of rock and roll Elvis Jerry Lee Lewis type type stuff more so than you know garage rock yeah which I guess the easy beats could be classified as um as well as you know bands like the missing links and of course the masters and apprentices which we've kind of touched on yeah and and I think that really sort of set the garage rock scene up for sort of kind of the next 20 or even more years. I mean, there were a lot of bands of a similar ilk mm-hmm. that, that came after that. I guess Easy Beats would be seen as being the, the birth of rock and roll in Australia to a, to a large extent. Um, at least that more a garagey version of it. And certainly one of the f- first big artists or big groups, I suppose, to achieve some level of international fame or at least be on the brink of it. I believe uh, O'Keefe was quite big internationally, but... Uh, O'Keefe was, but I can't think of many other artists Bowie has covered, so... Yeah, Australia. okay. And, of course, you know, the Easy Beats, like, I guess, in a similar vein to the Masters Apprentices, were on the on the precipice of quite big things internationally, but, uh, you know, certain things sort of stood in their way. It was drugs or management issues and things like that. But certainly Friday My Mind was a, 
an international hit. Yeah, and I guess the the Easy Beats uh, are a good link to a, a number of other bands and artists that were to come. Uh, oh, totally. Huge influence, and I guess their shadow loomed large over a lot of bands. Mm. Front of mind was Stevie Wright's solo stuff, which you know, in the 70s. Well, that yeah, that definitely links into the 70s. I mean, the Eevee parts one, two, three, huge. And even uh, Black Eyed Bruiser, which mm. was on, I think, Stevie's second album, uh, which was notably covered by Roast Tattoo mm. in, in the 80s. And of course, Rose Tattoo were covered by Guns N' Roses. So, you know, you could basically uh, credit all of Guns N' Roses' success with Rose Tattoo. Oh, totally. I don't think that's too much. No, no, I think that's fine. I think that's Mm. apt. Well, the fact that every time Axel tours as Guns N' Roses, he gets Rose Tattoo involved somehow. And of course, actually, Guns N' Roses covered the Angels on stage the other day. Oh, really? Yeah, it's on YouTube. Oh, cool. I forget which song it was. It was like an album track, I believe. But uh, yeah, they did a fairly faithful Angels cover. He thanks Doc or says goodbye to Doc at some point during the song. So this is is for Doc. Awesome. Yeah, pretty cool. I love that. Well, I mean, the 70s were key era for Australian rock. I mean, that's where things really started exploding. Internationally as well. I mean, there's particularly the the punk, the Australian punk sound. Yeah. It started to emerge in the 70s. Um, yeah. But there were a lot of people were listening to, to Australian punk bands, like Bruce Springsteen is a fan of the Saints. Mm. And, uh, just recently covered Just Like just Firewood. Just Like Firewood, yeah. 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 And... Uh, you know, they, they were known, like particularly amongst bands overseas. I think that were listening to other bands and what they were doing. Mm. You know, for, for Guns and Roses to be aware of a Rose Tattoo is a really big deal. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and um, and Springsteen, a fan of the Saints. Yeah, yeah, they, they, you know, they were making an international impact, and of course, I think the influence of the Detroit punk scene had a big impact on on the, on the Sydney punk scene as it started to emerge. I know that. Mm. Well, I think definitely we. Yeah, the Stooges were a huge yeah. influence on you know Radio Birdman. Yeah. Well, not surprisingly, with the way they sound, but and uh, MC Five were another big one that uh, I know that um, Radio Birdman have have covered at some stage, and and uh, the Hoodoo Gurus are, like big fans of of the Detroit punk scene as well. I'm I know. Moving into the eighties too soon. <laughs> uh, we don't we, we don't need to worry about time so much. The late seventies, I suppose, it was there was a lot of punk bands emerging in Sydney, so you know, I think that's sort of important to mention, but. You know, like there was a lot of, I guess, musical change. You know, I know that towards the end of the 60s, there was a lot of the more the twee pop sound, even in the in the rock music. And the 70s sort of sort of started. I know like a band like Masters Apprentices uh, changed up their sound a lot. They were far poppier to begin with. And then they went over to England and produced their album Choice Cuts, which I think came out in 71. And, And they changed their sound to this real heavier, heavier guitar, more of a prog rock sound. And uh, that's definitely the direction they were going in when they eventually sort of folded. So I guess we're getting heavier, a heavier sound in Australian rock music, spearheaded by ACDC. It would have been emerging around that time, I guess. Well, bit... I mean, where was Zoot? We were talking about Rick Springfield before. When, what era was Zoot? Was late 60s, early 70s? It's a good question. I'd say definitely early 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the cover of Eleanor Rigby was quite big. Well, that was, that was one of their key tracks, covering Eleanor Rigby, and that was... That was pretty heavy. That was pretty dark. That was good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, obviously, Rick Springfield on guitar. And uh, actually, my dad tells a story of going to the, this is the Sydney Royal Easter show, I think it was. 
and they used to have a free free live music. Yeah. And there was a little side stage and Zoot were the headline actor that did a free gig at this at the Royal Easter show. Mm. So there was this huge crowd of kids there to see Zoot and they're wearing like pink lycra and things like that. It was pretty they're kind of glammy to look at. Yeah, they, they were they were a really big band at the time. Really big. And of course Rick started his solo career and became a daytime T V heartthrob and <laughs> Oh yeah. Jesse's girl and all the rest. Oh yeah. Well, just going back to the Saints for a moment, and I can't remember if it was uh, Chris Bailey or Ed Cooper that might have said this, but uh, talking about the punk scene at the time in the UK, one of them was saying that they were just reading all these magazines about what punk was, and that sort of you know spurred them on to start the band, but they hadn't actually really heard what punk was. It was yeah. just more of a concept. Mm. And I yeah, remember reading something where when they got eventually to the UK that it sort of wasn't what they thought and you know they didn't want to fit into that same sort of look and style which sort of makes sense when you think that the, mm. the whole concept of punk is you know do what you want be yourself but there was kind of that attitude at the time that this is what it's going to be from now on well like run like grunge punk got absolutely commodified it became a thing so to say yeah. like it i i quite like that they were spurred on by the concept of punk and then decided not to fit into punk because that in itself is punk like they're like fuck that we want to do our own thing yeah well those first three saints albums um i think when ed cooper was still in the band uh really great like strong songs fucking amazing songs on all of them yeah Probably more, a bit more musical than, than what the Sex Pistols were as well. That's yeah, probably why yeah. they didn't, didn't identify themselves with, with that, if that's yeah. what punk was at the, that particular time. It was just punk seemed to be whatever the mainstream wasn't. Mm. So they probably uh, identified with that ethos. But musically, you know, it's, it's, they're not that similar yeah. at the time. I think it was definitely the, the Detroit punk scene that they kind of identified with the, the sound of, you know, really driving heavy guitar and... And a looseness to it, but kind of, you can't, kind of can't take for granted how how musically, um, you know, gifted a lot of them, lot of them were. Mm. So, um, yeah, the Saints were definitely a big one. I think uh, they had really big underground success in, in the states, uh, in particular, and uh, I guess in England as well. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think moving away from the punk thing, the two two biggest long standing bands to come out of the seventies would have been ACDC and Cold Chisel. The fact that ACDC have only just now even considered stop touring because of, I think it was Malcolm Young is ill? Yes, yeah, he is. Yeah, so yeah. what happens with their next project, record or tour, who knows? But Well, I mean, why would you want to end it, I guess? you know, they, They've still released new music over the years. Um, Black yeah. Ice was quite successful. And, yeah. Um, that, and that tour was amazing. Yeah, I heard some statistic that one in... Eight Australians had a ticket to one of their gigs. It's <laughs> not surprising. Yeah, it was not massive. Surprising. Like absolutely massive. Yeah. I mean, I th- I think they're like you know their longevity is attributed to just how accessible their music has been since the beginning.
think of many other bands who have lost their lead singer and frontman and mm. still come back just as amazing and successful with the new frontman. In excess? Well, no. <laughs> no. Which, which frontman are they? Terence Trent Darby. Which of their many? John Stevens. Yeah. J.D. JD Fortune? J.D. Fortune. With a name like that, you're, you're destined for douchebaggery. Uh, well, ACDC were probably one of the first bands that I went to see. Um, I went to the, the Stiff Upper Lip Tour uh, and I actually went with my dad and one of his mates. And we, Would you classify that as first gig? Or? Uh, no, it wasn't my first gig. I'd been to gigs at like the PCYC and under 18 oh. you know, sort of shows. But as far as like big rock shows, that mm. was one of the first ones I went to. And I remember, yeah, we travelled down to the cross mm. and uh, yeah, went out for dinner. And I remember I just saw some dude passed out pissing on the <laughs> ground somewhere and i was like oh so this is what king's cross is like but yeah no it was a it was a great show and yeah definitely very memorable made an impression on me oh that's awesome what was a, what venue would that have been at uh, i was at the entertainment center okay they're still quite intimate i mean they, they, moved, they moved on to stadiums you know you're a big band when you call the ant Center intimate yes yeah, well, I did go see them on the Black Ice tour as well, but yeah, that was out at uh, Olympic Park, so yeah, much bigger venue there. Mm, definitely. So ACDC, we've you know partially covered. Cold Chisel was Chisel! the other band you mentioned. When they started out, they were pretty hard living guys. Yeah, well, like, I guess mm. it's Australian pub rock at, at its best, really. Mm. Yeah, I guess so. But well, again, like super musical though. Like some of those songs. You probably take for granted now because we've heard them thousands of times. Yeah, but uh, I mean, Walker is just a phenomenal song. Oh, Don Walker is amazing, yeah. isn't he? It, it was great. Uh, I think it was in yeah in April this year. I went to Lazotte's to see uh, Tex Perkins play, oh. and uh, he was playing with Charlie Owen from Divinals and yep. Beast of Bourbon, mm. amongst others. And uh, you know they did release a couple albums in the '90s and also in the 2000s. Text on and Charlie, yeah. and uh, they actually got Don uh, on the phone to like <laughs> phone it in, as it were. Oh, really? <laughs> One of the songs. It was it was pretty great. Sang it over the phone. Yeah. Really? I think it was. Uh, might have been Redhead, Redhead's Gold Cards, and Long Black Limousines. If, okay. Yeah. So it was it was good. Yeah. Yeah, I saw Don Walker open for Paul Kelly years ago. It was a state theatre. He wasn't great on his own. It was a little bit boring. To use the harsh word, it was a bit boring on his own. But kind of like literary, like just just didn't really project. I don't know. I, I was it was a long time ago. I would have been probably a teenager. But I remember recall being like not too blown away by his performance. Well, like so. most great bands, they're a combination of all the the members. You know, like yeah. it's it's something none of them can replicate on their own. I mean, Jimmy Barnes had a great solo career, but it was yeah. a completely different thing. Um, yeah, never Walker, Barnes, awesome combination. Mm. He's a brilliant musician and, you know, it was, it's, uh, it's no coincidence that their best songs were all penned by him. Mm. I guess most obviously Kaysan. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. I wanted to spend the band he had that night. I can't really recall, but I remember, and probably also a case of the fact that I was there really to see Paul. But, uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, did you guys see Chisel when they played toward last time? No, time? no, I didn't. Yeah. I wish I had. Yeah. But I didn't. They did Panthers. That was good. Yeah, 
We um, when we were living in Sydney, we did go see UMI though after they supported Cold Chisel. Yeah, at the yeah. Annandale, and that was a fucking awesome. That gig. was an amazing gig. But uh, we'll get to nineties rock soon enough. Yeah, soon. Enough. <laughs> but yeah, no, Chisel are absolutely worth a mention, and one of the key sort of late seventies, early eighties bands, and that that legacy is continued on amazingly like even through people covering them like in the last five years i think every generation has sort of latched on to chisels music oh totally i guess the i've always wondered why i'm sure there's, there's reasons for it but why they weren't bigger internationally um certain people have heard of their songs every so often you'll hear of an international artist mention them but when you look at the quality of, the, of some of their tracks they really should have been you know one of the biggest artists in the world oh, I, I agree and I can't even say it's because of the Australiana aspect because ACDC were as Australian as any other band at the time there is a bit of a running theme in Australian bands trying to crack America I think we've generally had more success in, in England mm. oh totally but uh, I mean Saints especially that kind of thing yeah I think um yeah, it's 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 been a bit tough for them. It's been a combination of things. I mean, some some bands, you know, drank and snorted all their their income and and didn't. Jimmy Barnes was famous for his drinking. He was. Yeah, he's a, he's a teetotaler these days. But he was. Uh, yeah, he was he was an addict of, of many sorts. I don't blame him though. I figure you get like a certain like allocation of things you can do in your life, and he blasted through them in the seventies, eighties. Yeah, that's fair enough. You know, he's got these uh, Scottish blood. He's Scottish, isn't he? Though Cold Chisel didn't have a huge amount of success overseas. I mean, once they parted, Jimmy Barnes had a huge amount of success in Australia and became sort of an icon on his own. Yeah, of course. You know, he kept reinventing himself. He did the sort of soul music as well. Mm. Um, combination of of original music, and he also became well known for doing a lot of covers. Yeah, uh, River well, Deep, Mountain High was a big hit for him. Uh, did that song with Farnsey. Yeah, um, my, my partner Nothing Cutesy was one of the first records her parents bought on CD was um, the Soul Deep records. So. It was massive. Yeah. yeah, it was a huge, huge album in Australia. And I believe he did, he did a sequel, Soul yeah. Deep 2, as well. Yeah, yeah, he did. And uh, so he's, you know, he's still got his voice. I think that's the main thing. Through all the uh, the drinking and whatnot, he's, and all the partying over the years, he's still got a voice that, that works. Yeah. I'm very impressed by I'm very impressed <laughs> that by nice that. Work. That was nice work. Oh, nice Opening the bottle cap with the inside of oh, your I elbow. I didn't realize I did it. So. I, I <laughs> almost I almost feel like next you're gonna pull out um pull out the crack the beer open with your eyes. It was socket. like okay, we're talking about cold cheese on stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know I should have used my <laughs> So happy you did that. I should have used my teeth. No, yeah, exactly. Uh, but I mean working on from cold chisel. The 80s were a completely different time for Australian rock than the 70s. The 70s were very much... Oh, I mean, the 80s were hard living, surely. But it was very... Apart from Men at Works um, Down Under, it was very, like, a little more international. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, there was an 80s sound throughout the world, really. Yeah. Or throughout the, you know, the Western world in, in mainstream pop that made its way to Australia. Uh, I believe a lot of it... Like a lot of it has to do with changing technology as well. I believe it. Oh, totally. It was a big part of rock music, you know, when the first Fender electric guitars <laughs> came out, uh, and similar with synths and you know electronic sounds, and uh, that you know crept into Australian music. And of course, a lot of bands that have been quite heavy you know, rock bands in the seventies uh, shifted it up and became sort of you know synth based and oh, totally. glammy and. Um, there was you know, a big keyboard sound throughout a lot of a lot of stuff. Um, mm. I mean, 
the only probably the bigger bands like ACDC were really able to resist the the, the changing the urge to the urge to do it. You know, they probably would have rather died before picking up a <laughs> uh, a synth. But uh, the guys from ACDC can't see with the synth. No, I, I can't see uh, uh, Angus Young. You know, spinning around the ground with a guitar or something. Or... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would pay to see that, though. I'm sure he's done it at a party or something. <laughs> Not in public. <laughs> All right, key bands of the 80s for Australian rock. Uh, for me personally, uh, I would have to say the Hoodoo Gurus and the Beast of Bourbon. Uh, they're probably my, my two favourites mm. from the 80s. Uh, but there's, yeah, surely a hell of a lot more than that. I mean, yeah, yeah. The, the Church are another, another big one. The Triffids. Yep. What about yourself? Yeah, well, obviously the Hoodoo Gurus, and after just talking about the synth sound, I mean, they uh, resisted that a great deal as well. I don't think any of their songs have a, a, a prominent keyboard sound anyway. But um, obviously the church did have that spacey 80s sound. It, did, it was in the Triffids music as well. Um, just trying to think, who, who else? Like, I mean, I'm a big fan of Icehouse. Um, they had that, you know, David Bowie influence, that kind of uh, spacey, glammy kind of sound. Certainly the Hoodoo Gurus, I mean, they're one of my, if not my favourite Australian band. They just sort of kept doing their, you know, their, their punk thing, their punk-inspired thing, which works for them. Did yeah. you go to the uh, Dig It Up festival uh, or, or one of the Dig It Up festivals? I saw the second one, yeah, with, which had Blue Oyster Cult and uh, the Buzzcocks and, of course, the Gurus. And uh, it was fantastic. Um, they were really cool tasting music uh, and they're real, like, particularly Dave Faulkner and Brad, like massive music nerds and they went to a lot of obscure bands so being exposed to their influences in that kind of format was uh you know it was fantastic it was a real tease though only seeing 45 minutes of Blue Oyster Cult that was that was really tough like they were just warming up you know so yeah yeah well I got to go the the first year for Dig It Up um was actually living in Newtown at the time so it was sort of perfect um but yeah like like you said amazing lineup um I think I got to see the hard-ons I uh, got to see uh, Kim Salmon, yeah. Spencer P. Jones, uh, the Gooch Palms yeah, played yeah. as well, and, yeah. and they were great. Red Cross. The, uh, Red Cross did play. I didn't actually see them, though, but I did see the Sonics, okay. yeah. which was, yeah, absolutely brilliant. And then the Gurus played uh, all the Stone Age Romeos, and then just pretty much a, a best-of set from there. So yeah. it was just, yeah, a crazy day. It was good. The second one was fantastic. Like The Flame and Groovies was another one, and they were a band I'd only heard of because my... My uncle was a fan, and uh, he'd seen them live before, but I think, I don't know if it was in Australia, it might have even been overseas, but they were this real cult band that probably only 12 people in Australia even know. Mm. But uh, they, they were fantastic as well. So, And it was, it was Blue Oyster Cult's first ever tour of Australia, which, which is unbelievable, really. Mm. But um, it was a great day. I think Tumbleweed opened the main stage, and mm. there, was some, there was some good stuff on. I'm just opening my mouth that you have nothing to say. <laughs> don't, taunt, don't taunt me. <laughs> so the 80s, uh, lots of big acts nationally and internationally. I don't think we've mentioned NXS. NXS, huge internationally. Well, yeah, they were quite big. Yeah. Well, I think we kind of mentioned them, but we didn't really go we mentioned, into We mentioned the Latin well, years of NXS. Yeah, we, we sort of mentioned the dark times rather than the, the good times. Oh, look, Michael Hutchins was just one of those classic frontmen, you know. He was, he was good looking, had a great voice, had a great stage presence, and that works for, mm. works for a band.
I feel sorry for them because they desperately tried to continue their career when he died. I mean, to the point of having a reality TV show. Oh, that um, that was where it should have stopped. <laughs> like, fair enough that they wanted to continue with other other names, but they yeah. almost should have stopped, started again under a different name. Like, New Order just continued. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's lots of different ways to do it, and they chose to do, to do it that way. I suppose I don't I don't know enough about what attempts went on behind the scenes, you know, to to find someone that could replace him. But I, I do feel, you know, it's, it's a ter- terrible thing. They're musically, you know not really at a peak they were still getting bigger and yeah and uh it must be incredibly tough just to have it sort of all in like that mm. and but i think yeah there's there's something to be said for starting afresh getting a new singer and just just bank on your songwriting rather than rather than oh yeah rather than the name but keep, keep writing new material running back to australian rock in the 80s in excess i mean kick peak of their peak of their powers uh, that was an amazing Australian international record. Eighties Australian was sort of the peak of international success. I mean, uh, Men at Work, Men like Land Down Under, like that kind of stuff. Just while you can question its credibility at times, maybe, but I it can't was say huge overseas. I loved um, Business as Usual, the album that I was off. My dad had it on vinyl. And it's probably one of the few Australian artists he had on record, actually. He had a Skyhooks album. Mm, had, another band we didn't mention. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to think the name of the, the album. I don't know if it's All My Friends Are Getting Married was, a, was the name of the record or not. But mm. I remember it clearly because it had really bright, vivid artwork. And on the back was a, a drawing of a... It was a severed finger, a, fi- a woman's finger that had been severed and sent to them with a, a letter yeah. saying "I love you" and "Here's my finger" kind of thing. Yeah, it wasn't a photo; it was just a, it was just a, like a, a painting, but it was pretty cool. And um, but I, I actually got really hooked on that business as usual album. It's mm. like really insanely catchy '80s pop. Was who can it be now on it? Yeah, who can it be now? Was Overkill on that or a different record? No, Overkill was on the the second and pretty much the last album they did. Mm. They only did two. Uh, because I mean they had enough of an impact overseas I mean to do a couple of huge tours still be successful over there and I mean um, Colin Hay was on that episode of Scrubs not like 10 years ago like yeah. they like they still have a decent amount of name over there well I know they were big in uh, in South America as well yeah they used to have success over in Brazil and yeah. places like that and uh, still toured there um, well, still, I think Colin Hay still does a lot of tours there mm. He's um he did that Denton show where he's like I can go to South America and play to thousands of people and come back here and play to no one in a Melbourne pub. Yeah, 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 pretty much. And he's been a very prolific songwriter ever since. He's I, some I, of his solo stuff is lovely. Oh, it's fantastic. He's still a really, really gifted songwriter. No, I recommend give, giving that up. Giving business as usual. Listen from start okay. to finish. It's like really crazy, like insanely catchy um, pop songs. Yeah. Um, and you know, probably down under is probably the least interesting song on it, to be honest. Like, yeah. I used to always skip that cause I was so familiar with it. I just jumped to this, 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 to the B side, the second side. I don't know. Sometimes there's like that one song that ruins an album or, or a band for you. You go, Oh, that's I'm not into that. Yeah. And so like, I'm probably haven't really checked it out. Maybe I should. Yeah. They're really, really catchy kind of, um, really upbeat, slick, um, 
Yeah, there's a, there's a beautiful love song on there called I Can See It In Your Eyes, which is just like, it's a stunning song. But when you hear Down Under in comparison to the rest of the record, it's almost like... It's almost like the novelty song. It's almost like is a novelty song compared to what, what yeah. they did normally. Like they have yeah. way more depth than that song. Yeah, shows. it was like a kitsch sort of tongue-in-cheek song, really. Yeah, it happened to become the big hit. Oh, I, I guess it's wish. just totally opposed to the sort of sound that I picture in my head when I think about '80s rock, because uh, I guess, like I mentioned, that the beats are probably my my favorite, and the gurus, yeah. and it's just yeah. that sort of dense sound that yeah. I don't know that sort of conjures up well, in my the mind key, key bridging band between international success and that dense sound was Midnight Oil I think Midnight Oil about to re-release like a lot of their albums um, special editions all that kind of stuff as most bands now do um, but they were huge and I think they're a great bridging band between what you're talking about yeah, I mean, they, they were pretty big internationally and another artist that sort of known to, to rock fans around the world. Yeah. It's just a shame that he decided to go into politics. Uh, I turned 30 a month ago. Mm-hmm. Moose, how old are you? <laughs> Nothing, Kitsy. How old am I? You're 28. I'm 28. Nick? 30. Okay, so we're showing our age here. So <laughs> let's, full disclosure up front, the I 90s like are probably the time for the three of us where we're going to nerd out. Yeah, to a certain extent. I've kind of had, I've had to make up for lost time because I didn't really get into Australian music, Australian 90s rock until early 2000s. Mm. So Why is that? Um, well, mainly because I just grew up on a diet of my dad's uh, vinyl collection. Yeah. So it, didn't, it wasn't into modern music. So I I'd kind of – I was a little bit snobbish, I suppose. And, uh, you know, I just listened to his Jimi Hendrix – Vinyls and his his mm. doors stuff and the Sabbath and Sabbath and see I grew up on a diet of my brother's nineties records because he was about nine years older than me so he was very much in his nineties rock at the time so that's yeah. why I was into that yeah see I didn't have that that influence mm. so like, my dad was into obscure prog bands for, um, British prog bands like like Wishbone Ash and, and Yes and then yeah. there's this band called Focus from um, is that they, deliberate they were You're doing a yeah yes that... <laughs> certainly not okay right. Um, so I, I was listening to all, the, all this weird stuff that my friends had no idea what it was, like whether it was like weird British prog or um, like Jethro Tull. Like I say about most other people, fuck them. <laughs> fuck them. Or, um, yeah, well, that, that, was, that, was, that was my kind of stance on it. Like I, I'd, I'd talk to my friends at school about music and they'd like laugh at me. Like I listen to old people's music, and I was like, "Yeah, well, it's, it's better." And they'd be like, "I listen to Disney soundtracks, and I got accused of listening to girls' music." <laughs> and now I say, "Fuck them." Mm. Um, but before we move on to the fact that we all sort of, well, two of us out of three grew up in '90s rock, um, mm. I'm just running through this list we made beforehand. I think we've completely missed out on um, Nick Cave, which is like huge influence on oh, yeah. Nick Cave's previous bands. Sunny Boys in general, hard-ons. Like, there's so many with... Uh, Paul Kelly that we've forgotten to talk about before we head on to that 90s. Well, we're not going to be able to talk about All of every them. band that we think's great. But, yeah, you're right. I, I think the hard-ons actually played at the small ballroom. They did. Last week. Um, I would have loved to have gone. I did get to go, um, not under the good... Good circumstance, but after Blackie had uh, got bashed um, oh, a couple man. of years ago, I did go to the tribute um, night they did at Dannendale, um, where they had Keish uh, play with them, and yeah, it was a, a great night. Although I did actually get punched in the face as uh, that night. That night. Oh, for fuck's sake! Because a fight broke out, and I 
tried to break it up Eject, yeah. and then uh, I got punched so that was kind of a simple twist of fate it always happens like that it's always the person stepping in that's why I don't get involved don't step in fuck I don't get involved in any conflict fuck them well, I don't like to get involved in conflict, but I also don't like conflict. So yeah. I was kind of like, hey, guys, we're meant to be here because someone got bashed. So maybe <laughs> don't. don't try and bash each other. And then I got hit. Which, that's the yeah. key example of like success at the time and not quite, not quite having that revivalism or not quite having that continued success. I mean, the dude was working as a cab driver and he got punched in the face by two fuckwits. It's like, oh, dude, you have no idea. There's a million people out there that love your records and that think that you're an absolute legend and you're out there getting punched in the face by two little fuckwits. Sorry. Which, which member was it? Uh, it was Blackie. Blackie. So is he the... The singer. Yeah, yeah okay. Well, he, he was the singer, like, after Keish left the band. Yeah. Okay. So they're one of those bands I'm not too familiar with, mm. the uh, the history or the music. Mm. I'm aware of their pedigree uh, in general, like, particularly with American punk bands and yeah. stuff. There's a, lot, a lot of them love the hard-ons. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I can't really purport to know a great deal about them. Uh, they they supported um, Jello Biafra at yeah. last year. Um, mm. They played at the Cambridge, and uh, which we won tickets to from Trivia. Mm-hmm. So thank you, thank you. Um, My pleasure. But but yeah, that was an amazing show. Like not just the hard ons, but Jello Biafra was absolutely incredible. Like I was blown away. Yeah. Well, moving on, um, we can talk about Nick Cave if you want to, but I feel like somebody should mention Paul Kelly. Yeah, I 80s Australian. Mm-hmm. Noted. Ah, noted. So noted. (laughs) Took me a long time to get into Paul Kelly. Um, I was always aware of his songs, but it's funnily enough in about maybe like 2006 actually that I actually started to really like him Mm. um, because I think he was supporting Brian Wilson in the domain for the Sydney Festival and my dad and I both love the Beach Boys and we'd seen we've seen Brian Wilson probably four times now together and um we went down to see Brian Wilson and Paul Kelly was supporting and I was always aware of his songs and I always liked him but I never you know you know there's that thing inside you that clicks with a band and you're very aware of them until that point when you go fuck yeah love it um, and it was when the uh, electric guitar part kicked in in deeper water where the where after the first verse it just stops and he starts playing the riff with electric guitar and it just absolutely kicks in I went holy fuck I love this song really get into him from there but he's well worth a mention oh he's probably well I've always said he's probably the greatest songwriter that Australia's ever produced oh yeah uh, he's an absolute freak he, actually he's an artist that my dad I don't think dad had it on vinyl but from a very early age we'd play uh, Paul Kelly cassettes in the car mm. for sure comedy was a really big album that we listened to a lot which opens with don't start me talking and I, I'm trying to think if deeper water is actually on that or not was it on its own album but uh, it's 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 a classic. I know Winter Coats on that album and a lot of his other. Really the amount of people songs. I've met cite Winter Coat as their favorite Paul Kelly song. It's a classic. Mm. It's like he's um he's one of those lyricists. I mean, as a writer, you know, I listen to lyrics as well. Some of his turns of phrase and his imagery and his ideas and stuff. You just you kind of you hate yourself for never being able to knowing <laughs> you'll never be able to do that. Yeah, You're like I'll never be that articulate, mm. even if I try. And he's such an unassuming guy. He's not the kind of guy who grandstands. He's not the kind of guy who you think would be able to produce 
such amazing insight. But yeah. I mean, even even when he did the A to Z shows and A to Z shows, and when the the book and the CD set came out, I remember getting that for Christmas, thinking, "Oh yeah, this will be good." But by the time you listen to it and read the book, you're like, yeah. "Oh fuck, yeah, this is on another level. This is amazing." Yeah, he's a genius lyricist, uh, like musically as well. But his lyrics in particular are just there's one called um, I think it's called They Thought I Was Asleep yeah that one yeah and it's from the point of view of a kid in the back while his parents are fighting on this dro- night, like night drive home and it just you can't hear it not well up it's just nobody breaks your heart as, as yeah. well as Paul Kelly does yeah. Jesus and the one about um, if I could start today again yeah yeah, it's like, yeah. yeah. Oh, ca- it just kills me yeah it just like, kills I'm, you yeah. right yeah yeah I think my main memory of Paul Kelly is just like barbecues at like family friends places growing up yeah like probably the songs for the south the yeah. best of like that used to get a yeah the flogging it was a big release that yeah so i just sort of grew up listening to to that and i don't know bruce springsteen's best of and that that sort of thing but like I mean, you go to barbecues and then you grow up and you go hang on those songs are just yeah like I, I didn't take notice of it at the yeah. time because it's just background music to me as a kid yeah but then when you start to understand it, it's like, wow, that's... Mm. And he's someone who had a lot of success early on, but he's never really stopped producing quality music. He never went through a shit period. He always continued to release great stuff. And, I mean, on the second Songs of the South um, record was stuff like I'll Be Your Lover and Love is mm. the Law and that kind of stuff, and it's really great. That, that album, um, Stolen Apples, yeah. that's yeah. fucking amazing. That's yeah. really good. Even the last record, Spring and Fall, which came out last year or the year before, that was great. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's never dropped off as a songwriter. He's, yeah. he's been consistent, um, you know, just like, as consistent as when he started, really. Like, yeah. Some artists just seem to lose the, the passion for it for some reason. And they'll, they'll still tour to make, to make ends meet, but they won't release as much music. But, mm. Paul Kelly's never been like that. He clearly still has that drive to do it. And interestingly, I mean, I got to interview him once, which was really, really cool. Mm. I was asking him about his inspirations for songs and things, and he, he made a big point of saying, I, I, don't, I don't ever talk about myself. I only tell, like, only tell other people's stories. Yeah. He's a, he's a very private guy. I know there was a documentary made about him recently, which I haven't seen yet, but apparently it's like the first real insight into a lot of, the, a lot of his life and... Because even in interviews and in his songs, like you don't really get much insight into him as a person. Mm. Nobody can write like that guy. It's it's sort of like great economic writing, like in terms of how much of a story he can fit into a three minute song. Yeah. Like he, like the way he selects every single word and the and the the arrangement of the of the of the of the verses and things. You can cram a person's life into three minutes. You Pretty know? much. And you know, when you think about how much is in deeper water. It, it's a longer song for him, but still. It's only about five minutes. Yeah. And he, is, he actually, it's, it's two people's lives. Yeah. That you pretty much, he sums up two people's lives in one particular song. And not yeah. just two people's lives, but the whole nature of, of life. life. Mm. The circle of life, to quote. Um, and just moving on quickly before we get to 90s rock, which I'm sure we're going to spend a lot of time on. Uh, Nick Cave, Beats of Bourbon. Take it away, Pointy. You saw Beast of Bourbon doing their three classic lineup shows recently. Mm. You've got to love that. I did see the uh, three shows last year, which was kind of the, the classic Beast lineup, which was from the Axeman Jazz and Sour Mash and Black Milk. Yep. And then the s- sort of second version of the band, which was for the Low Road, uh, which is when I think uh, there was sort of some of the scientists came to play with the Beast. So. And the the third version, which was when Charlie Owen joined the band, 
Um, so yeah, like all three shows were very different, but yeah, Texas still got it, and Spencer Jones is fucking amazing. Yep. Uh, got to see him before the B shows. He played at uh, the Midnight Special in Newtown, which is a very sort of small bar uh, on Enmore Road, and yeah, it was just loose as anything. Like Spencer's just playing. Uh, James Baker was there. And yeah, maybe 50 or 60 people just crammed into this small space watching him play. Was, yeah, probably one of, the, one of the best gigs I went to last year. Yeah, yeah. I, I got to see Beasts when they reformed for Home Bake one year. And it uh, was, was just off the charts. Uh, text, you know, pretty much worked the crowd into a frenzy. And I remember him uh, jumping onto one of the security guard's shoulders. He wasn't really expecting it, but just climbed on. And he's a big dude. He's, yeah, he's a, he's a big guy. Um, I, might, I think he might have picked out a big security guard. But, uh, and the guy kind of walked him up, you know, sort of towards the crowd and walked him along the front of the, of the barricade. And, and uh, yeah, it was just a, just a dirty, gritty rock show. It was, it was, yeah, off the hook. Yeah, well, like, I didn't really know much about the Beasts until maybe sort of late 90s. Well, actually, no, it would have been even after that, like maybe, yeah, early 2000s. Then I sort of, I was into the Cruel Sea and I was like, oh, yeah, I might check out The Beasts. And I remember just hearing uh, Chase the Dragon for the first time. I was like, fuck, this is amazing. What is this? And then I just sort of went back from there and just that sort of swampy grunge before grunge sound and like the scientists were much the same, sort of, you know, had that sort of dirty dirty rock sound yeah it's pretty cool I, I don't know if I would have liked it as a young guy I, was, I got into darker music with Nick Cave and stuff but um darker music <laughs> I didn't really properly listen to them to Beasts until they released a box of their first three albums yep. sort of remastered on yeah. CD yeah so that, that I kind of put that on and listened to all of them and I've since got a rare limited edition X-Men's jazz vinyl that I got from one of the vinyl fairs like an original pressing but, like uh, it's a red eye version of it or oh sorry black eye i think it came out i honestly oh, thought you just be. said x-men's jazz <laughs> that's that'd be, well we, that'd be we didn't talk about the uncanny x-men no i was thinking, <laughs> oh. I was thinking more Thanks. like x-men okay so 90s australian rock if you had to choose one band to sum it all up what would you choose Moose? you am i easy okay nick oh god this is tough um 90s sound doesn't necessarily need to be the 90s sound just when you think of the 90s and, and australian music what sort of band comes to oh, mind probably, first probably magic dirt i, I was just guess. gonna say it's umi or you're out the door so no <laughs> okay I'll that's, no, that's fine. magic dirt's all right yeah She's okay. i think they they sort the sound for me to yeah. a large extent um and oh look i, I think silver chair's first album dare i say it mm. Um, it's a great album. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and you know, put Australian music on the world stage again. I, I kind of I remember my very first home back. I think it was in two thousand, and it was sort of like the cream of the crop in terms of nineties mm. rock. And uh, I remember seeing Magic Dirt for the first time, as well as Jebediah and Spider Bait, uh, Body Jar, uh, Super Heist. They, they Super play. Heist were were the first band I saw at oh, really? Broadmeadow uh, PCYC. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked. Oh, I can't think of what that song was called. They had it on high rotation, but um. The singer was called Burger. That's all you need to know. Burger. Was it uh, Two Face? Check your head up or Have Your Way? Crank the system. Bullet. None of them is. Oh, I guess. I'm not cool. a judgmental person, but we might um, as well be talking about 28 Days here. Yeah, 28 Days. Wow. I saw them at the at uh, the brewery. 
I think it was their last ever... Oh, no, they have toured ever since, but I think it was a sort of a farewell tour for them. Yeah, they had a bit of a... That was like early 90s hip-hop for Australia, I guess. 28 days, early 2000s, mm. totally. Early 2000s? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it would have been. That's right. But again, see, I you know I wasn't really paying much attention in the 90s. Mm. Um, and uh, all my friends were, but uh, I, I kind of discovered it all. I guess I had to look it all up, really. Um, well, in terms of like current Australian bands that are going through like their 20th anniversaries and they're, they're I mean, with Grinspoon now, first time they've gone on a hiatus. I mean, you've got UMI, Something for Kate, Magic Dirt, Grinspoon. Like, there's a huge amount of great influential bands from the 90s in Australia. Yeah, well, well Magic Dirt haven't played for for a while now yeah. um, but Adelaide has brought out a couple of really strong solo albums yeah All Day Venus was amazing her second solo album her first solo album was really good but her second solo album was amazing that second album the gig we went to at the Great Northern last year was just so great and yeah. those songs are, yeah not that the first album's bad it's fucking brilliant in its own way but uh, I think having the the full band really filled the sound out a lot oh yeah definitely. and it meant it could go to more places mm. but i mean we did our own episodes on umi and grinspoon so you can refer to those if you want to hear our thoughts on those bands we love them both umi especially but what about the super jesus yeah well super jesus for me were probably a product of recovery mm. and i did spend a lot of time watching recovery uh, as a teenager and that's probably where I got into a lot of different music. Uh, you know, Grinspoon, Something for Kate, Jebediah, yeah. Super Jesus. Uh, and it was really good seeing Super Jesus last year. Yeah, uh, they were... And they, they were really tight. It was a really, really good show. Yeah. yeah. It's really good. Nick's just returned from a bathroom break. <laughs> uh, and we're just on the topic of the Super Jesus. Well, so it's here when you're splitting cases. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a getting through the case. We're doing, making great progress. Um, <laughs> I, I'm a mess. Actually, that was they probably were one of the big '90s Aussie bands I got into. I suppose I, I picked up Sumo from Mayfield Library and borrowed it from <laughs> Mayfield Library and um and uh, loved it. So, I mean, Sumo. I listened, the first the first time I listened to it, I was like, that is insane. It's an amazing album. Yeah, and I remember in a high school band just going. I think it was, um, what's the one with like the one minute intro with like lots of different guitar parts and it says um, I'm Stained? No, it's not. It's um, I'm Stained. The long big intro. Yeah, yeah, I think it might be I'm Stained, but I played, um, I played that particular song for my guitarist and said, this is what I want. This is what we're going with. Like, I fucking love that album in general. It's got a very uh, Siamese Dream oh, kind of man. sound to it, I think. The guitar it's... sound on Siamese Dream is what that sounds yeah. like. They, they openly credit Siamese Dream for inspiring it I've, I've interviewed Sarah before um, a few times interviewed her a few times over the years yeah. and she she said yeah we were just listening to Siamese Dream her and Chris Tennant the original it's guitarist. very obvious yeah it's, yeah. which is not a bad it's thing right way no. though it's no. it's own thing oh I mean the songs on there are classics it's not a bad it's not a bad track the production's great and, uh, and it's only got like 10 or 11 tracks so it doesn't mm. overstay its welcome it is sort Shut of gets in does it is Shut My Eyes a secret track on that? It is yeah. 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 yeah 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 I'd have Rail as well the EP yeah that's right but um yeah I mean that was a big influence and then of course I think because of the fact that Sarah is such a a, a massive fan of pop music that's sort of where the sound started to go um she openly admits that she was a big, big fan of pop and they started to write pop rock songs instead of that, that real heavy grunge influence and 
Well, Jet Age was a good album. It was it was not mm. as consistent as Sumo, but it was still a good album. Yeah, but very different. It was a different musical direction, mm. I think, noticeably. Yeah. yeah, I think it's one of those cases where you're sort of damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Like, they released that first album, everyone loved it, and it was like, where to from here? Yeah, and yeah. Well, I think Chris Tennant leaving the band made a big influence. That was a huge influence. Yeah, and um, the, the the new guitarist that arrived, uh, his name's going to escape me. Yeah, me too. Funnily um, enough, is this the guy that formed? Um, he played with on the, the do it with tour. Madonna. Yeah, Androids. Yeah. Matt, um, Matt, that went well. Matt. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh shit! What's his name? Hold on. <laughs> Just, um, just before you do Google it or look at the line, it's just make up a name and let's see how close you are. I'm gonna Brad go, Storch. Okay. Um, I was going to say Henwood. That's not right. Mick. T- Tim Henwood? T- Tim Henwood. Is it Tim Henwood? Tim Henwood. Hold on, we actually have a CD here. Uh, I'm going to go with Tim Henwood. A CD is a circular disc C- that has music on it. Before, D- compactual. Can you use your fancy eyes? Compactual disc. Yeah. That's small writing. I'm thinking, I think it is Tim Henwood. Here we go. This he made a, the uh, some sort of pictures. He here. did it with Madonna, right? Yeah, he formed the Androids. He yeah. left the Super Jesus. Paul Berryman. He's the drummer. Stuart Rudd. Bassist. Tim Henwood. Tim Henwood. That's it. That's the guy. That's the guy. So he actually rejoined them for the most recent tour because and Madonna got rid of him. Well, yeah, yeah. He um he had, he was getting along with Sarah really well, from what I understand. They had a really good songwriting partnership, and he decided to kind of have a go at being the frontman of a band. And I remember she was a little bit pissed off about it. I would be. Yeah, um, then she went on as the principal songwriter into the third album, I think it was called Rock Music. Rock Music, yeah. Which again had like the odd good track, but just they never recaptured that kind of epicness. I I, I honestly sort of gave up after Sumo. I did listen to Jet Age and I liked some of the songs. It it was a quiet taste. And I was like, yeah, I I sort of, Gravity I thought was really good. Well, in terms of Jet Age, man, I did like. Now, with the passage of time, <laughs> I can appreciate that song just yeah. as a fun thing. But at the time, I was like, what is this? But in terms of success, they had a bit of chart success with Enough to Know and Gravity, didn't they? Like, yeah. They they, they went to a different audience. Oh, they did. They, well, they were playing. They played on mainstream radio all of a sudden. Yeah. And they weren't really in the beginning. They were really an underground you know, heavy rock band. I can tell you, though, the, the band that got me into Australian music and modern music in general was, was a living end. Oh. Well, the Leaving Under are a fantastic 90s Australian band that mm. continues today. It all came about because I think um, all my friends listened to Triple J and I didn't, obviously, because I didn't play Black Sabbath. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, Fuck them. I used to call in and go, fucking play Black Sabbath. Um, <laughs> play Warpigs. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I voted for Warpigs in the Hottest 100 that year, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I went, on a, I went on a camping trip with my old man to... It would have been the Crescent Head because he used to go on some camping trips there. And I think just because we're in the car and there's something different to listen to, I, I put on Triple J. And it was when The Living End was, were on high rotation and four of their songs would, would have been on high rotation. So these songs would come on and I'm like, that's a good song. And I'm like, who was that? And I eventually worked out that all four of them are by this same band. Is this the first record or the second? First record, yeah. 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 So, so, um, so of Society, Second Solution, All Torn Down. Mm-hmm. Um, Same today. Same today, yeah, cool. I am quite a big fan of the second Living End album, though. I think that's massively underrated. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I, everything after that is a bit of a mixed bag. Yeah. Well, okay. that second album is fucking. It's yeah, it's great for me. I it's it's not as good as the first, but it's it's as good in its own way. Yeah, it's, it's got a far more eclectic. Yeah. And I'll be really it's probably a bit more rock and uh, yeah. Well, there's one there's one song on there that's just a total ACDC tribute. Um, towards the beginning, uh, sorry, towards the end, it is. It's like track ten. I'm trying to think of what it's called. Um, and then there's other songs on there like I always liked "Carry Me Home." That was oh, probably yeah, my favorite right. on yeah, there. Yeah. And "Pictures in the Mirror" was the first single. Um, and uh, on the t- the title track was a single as well. The um, draw a line. Yeah, roll on. That's right. Which is sort of the, the when they got into the big working class anthems, I guess I call them. Yeah, which have become their bread and butter since. But roll on was good. Um, there's some other weird eclectic ones on, on there, like "Don't Shut the Gate." I think was track six, yeah. and it's quite a sort of a punky song, like really awesome drumming. And I really like modern artillery. I know that's not really kind of considered classic opinion or record, but. I really love the song So What. It's really Beatlesy, and I really like Jimmy and One Said to the Other and What's on Your Radio. Oh, What's on Your Radio. Um, yeah, was that on, that was on the next album? Yeah, no, that was on the next album. One Said to the Other. One said, yeah, like, I really like Modern Artillery. I thought that was really good, but it was when most people considered them to be starting to wane. But I thought that was a great album. Yeah, like I, I'm not hating on it in any sense, but yeah, I just didn't really get into it that much. Like the first two records and the original EPs were sort of it for for me the, the EPs were great um, from here on in is, is brilliant they do mm. um, a cover of The Cure's 1015 Saturday Night yeah which is phenomenal I, I played that a lot that EP um, it's not that they ever I think they just sort of became a little bit pedestrian I always still like them and it's probably a bit harsh but they when you when you listen to the albums and you kind of absorbed every album after the first two yeah there was stuff there to pick up on and stuff there to like. Well, there was an energy but, and a youthfulness about the first couple of records that they obviously couldn't contain as they grew up. Well, they, they invented a genre of music. You know, they kind of invented punkabilly pretty much. Yeah. At least their, their version of it. Certainly in it Australia. Was, it was actually groundbreaking musically. Uh, and I, I, I asked Chris once, it was probably about three albums in, I said, um, I'm trying to think specifically what the question was, but it was like, have you made the album that you want to make yet um, have you ever made the album that you, that you want to make and he said oh, I think it was the first one <laughs> he kind of said yeah. he was sort of conceding like the first one we did was like was it really but yeah. that's not surprising because you spend your whole life going mm. you know I want to produce this one piece of work if I ever get to make an album what am I going to make what's yeah. going to sound like but then after that like where to from here yeah I just found it interesting that, that so quickly though they turned their back on that rockabilly Influence yeah. almost like almost immediately after the first album, and I feel like they they could have probably done a bit more with that because it was so infectious uh, and so original, and then they kind of went up what more of it what I would call a traditional Aussie rock sound, and there was there was touches of it, but uh, yeah, I think the second album had sort of a, a mix of both really. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. I think I think um, he's really ambitious to be honest and he's a fantastic guitarist and yeah. maybe it was just him wanting to try the songwriting thing rather than guitar thing I don't know where like maybe he just wanted to go in a different direction and try different things but yeah I agree with you he could have done much more in that his, his guitar work is his best asset he's yeah. not the world, Chris isn't the world's best singer and he'd probably be the first to admit that but he's one of the best guitarists we've ever, ever seen in Australia he's absolutely virtuoso mm. like, and it's a shame he didn't go down more guitar orientated you know, go towards more guitar orientated stuff. I agree, but I like that. 
I like that he's an amazing guitarist who doesn't flaunt it as much as he could. Yeah. Like, yeah. he's an amazing guitarist who tries to work on his songwriting. He's always got something else he wants to pursue yeah. or something else he wants to try when he's great at this one thing. Mm. He's, he's still ambitious. Like, the, the, Is it the final track on Modern Artillery called The Room? It goes for eight mm, minutes? I think so. It's like an eight-minute closer. It's like this miniature rock opera, like something out of Tommy. You know, it's a masterpiece, basically. Yeah, The Room is on... The Room? The room is on Modern Artillery. And yeah, it goes for like eight minutes. It's just, it's just like... Prog sort of is a track called Maitland Street. Maitland Street is yeah, yeah. on that It's song. a cracking song as well. I found that that took a lot of listens for me to get into though. Whereas yeah. the first one was just instant, like you couldn't not be be kind of taken by it. And uh, they they pretty much got me into modern music. Like I, I that year. This was the record I liked as well. State of Emergency. Emergency. Yeah. In terms of songwriting for him, I thought that was really good. Apart from his guitar stuff, I think songwriting was really good. Yeah. But then, putting it into context, uh, Living End is right below Lindsay Lohan in my record collection, so, well. You probably really get, get down that far, then, if Lindsay's just before, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Sorry. you got to get, get through Lindsay. Uh. <laughs> okay, so Living End, uh, I think we can all agree, did some great stuff mm-hmm. in the 90s and continue to do so. Uh, what about Regurgitator? Oh, man. One of the first songs I actually really liked, funnily enough, was Miffy's Simplicity, an incredibly short and amazing song. I just remember, I know we spoke about recovery, but I remember seeing the video for Black Bugs yeah. on recovery and going, man, I don't know what this is, but I, I am like it. very into it. Yeah. Yeah, I think they were way ahead of my time in terms of my, well, they were way, they were way ahead of my musical tastes. I think I used to hear their songs on Triple J and I'd gravitate towards the, the accessible stuff. Like, I think I was very aware of Polyester Girl. and, and They broke huge with Polyester Girl. Yeah, well, they, they, they how that how far that tracked, you know? Yeah, Unit was a really big album. Yeah. I remember it was highly advertised on television and things like that. It was uh, it was a big release. Mm. Yeah, Polyester Girl was. Um, I think at the time, I I've I loved them a lot more in later life as I've listened to more of their stuff. I kind of can appreciate how how brilliant they are. But at the time, uh, I was probably listening to Regurgitator in fairly small doses as I was getting into you know your nineties Australian music. Mm. But it, it all it all came. I think they also played actually the the first homework I went to, mm. I believe. And, uh, that, Sounds about right. That was a big turning point for me because I was actually listening to all these, probably listening to bands for the first time, but also seeing so many bands live on the one day for the first time. It would have been my first festival. So, um, But, yeah, look, I've always, I've, I've definitely can appreciate how clever Regurgitator are, but, you know, they've sort of uh, pushed the envelope a fair bit. There'll be a lot of different influences in what they do. Um, well, I kind of like that they went out with a bang last year. Um, you know, it's Dirty Pop Fantasy. Yeah, like yeah. their most recent record is really great. It is really good. Like, yeah, amazingly good. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we went. To, well, I think Dylan and I went to see. I was in Canberra. Yeah, you were in time. Canberra. Yeah, we went to see the show at the Cambridge, and it was just fun from start to finish. Yeah, you couldn't fold it, and yeah, good. That times. seems like a good app description of the band. Yeah, well, you know, uh, you got a band with the first song on their first album is I Sucked a Lot of Cock to Get Where I Am, mm. and yeah. they're, they're yeah. in for some fun. A very <laughs> catchy song, by the way. <laughs> yeah, uh, do you remember when UMI covered it? Yeah. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, Look, okay. see, song formerly known as is probably the one that will most carry on from that band, and I mean, that's a great single. What's the one, I'm Just a Sucker Like You? Is, is that that? I'm just a sucker like you. It has like no name. It's just like a full stop or something. Uh, yeah, I think that's like a really heavy That's off the right? Uh, is it on to playing? Not to playing. It might be on to playing. Certainly. 
I'm just a sucker like you. I think I know what you're talking about, but I don't know what the song we'll is. We'll have to play all the CDs later just to make sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, now I want to. Look in the CD. It'll be there. Keep playing. It's, um, it, as far as I'm aware, it doesn't have a, a name. It's just got a, it's either just an exclamation mark or is that song formally known? That song formally known. Yeah. yeah. No, it's just got like a, a track number or something. But they did that live at the Cambridge last time I saw them. I wasn't there for the most recent gig, but when they did the, they, they did Unit and Two playing, I think it was all the way through, and then they did a third set of, of other random stuff. So maybe it wasn't even on. Might have been like, I know from the early EPs or something. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. It's I, I know it's on, I've got their singles CD at home, so I know it's on the singles yeah, collection. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, they're, they're great. I, I once booked um, Ben Ben Eli's side project when I was I used to book the the beaches, and I managed to convince his side project to come and do a gig. Which side project? Like, because he was in uh, Pangaea. Was he in that? No, it was. Um, they had a song called. Um, oh, what was God. it Happy Land? Jump, oh, no, to, that was... jump to light speed. Then. Happy oh. Land was with the spider back up. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. well, because Quan uh, was dating the singer. From yeah, 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 yeah. So they had, had that band together. But um, Jump to Light Speed, they were called. And they had one single on Triple J. Uh, Steve, who's now the singer of Step Panther, he's at Ex Nova Castry, and he, uh, he, he was in that band as well. Step Panther are great, actually. I love Step Panther. I don't know if you've heard Step Panther. No. They're modern, they've got a real 90s sound. They're, they're like let's release their second album or are releasing their second album and uh, yeah but um, I saw Regurgitator do I've seen them at lots of different festivals but I saw them do a free show on the foreshore which was funded by the government and I'm pretty sure the message was safe driving <laughs> is my recollection it had the hot lies Regurgitator headlined it it might have also even been 28 days and it was, it was basically, it was free. It's where Fatter's Butter is now. So it was facing out towards the beach. And the Gurge got up and headlined that. It was just a totally free show. So that was pretty cool. Okay, so maybe a 90s band that's uh, maybe not polarizing, but perhaps a little bit for some, uh, Powderfinger. you got to mention him. Dad Rock or... Got to put him in there. Or Rock. Um, <laughs> dad Rock. That's uh, a period. That's true. I mean, obviously, they were heavier heavy to begin with. Um, I think even before they were releasing music, they started out as being a, more of a metal band. Mm. That's what my understanding. And then they, and then the first album has elements of that heaviness, but then they got more and more. I think that you know their penchant was writing a big a big anthem, mm. which they probably did most creatively on Odyssey Number Five, and then after that, kind of tried to continue with you know with arguable arguable success I, I think Internationalist is a great album yeah. and yes. Odyssey number no. 5 was still is look it's still a classic in terms it of is. songwriting it's wonderful yeah I guess my takes yeah the first record's a little bit murky like you can sort of see what they were trying to achieve that's parables yeah and then with Double Allergic that's got big soaring choruses big guitars like it's Double pretty, Allergic is a good pretty, album especially oh it's amazing boing. like it's pretty hard not to like that record Boom. And Internationalist was like a really good mix. It was, yeah, probably got a bit more of a low-key indie sound. Yeah. And um, Odyssey, yeah, just sort of blew it up from there. On Double Allergic? Yep. I always loved DAF. Yeah. That's a great song. Yeah. But, but yeah, like I I think they sort of get some undeserved hate. Um, Like, yeah, sure, they probably didn't finish 
as great as they started. But yeah. No, but I saw probably them on undeserved. the last... They did a final tour, and I saw them in the amphitheatre in Darwin, a uh, large natural amphitheatre, and it was a pretty fucking good gig. It was really great, and they did a career retrospective, and it was tight, and it was big, and it was anthemic, and it was awesome. <sighs> Apologies, Bernard. Um, but I really don't like any of Bernard's solo stuff. I find it really boring. I think the first album wasn't great, but the second album had its moments. It, it, was, it was... I find it horrible. Like, I, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I, I listened to it once and I, I, nothing, I didn't latch on to any of it. It's not that it's... I wouldn't... I don't know if I'd quite say it was horrible, but it's... Not... Uh, sorry. Oh, okay. Horrible's maybe a bit strong. Yeah. But I'll find... You, uh, sorry, but I, but I mean, it's yeah. kind of just... It kind of just sounds like nothing to me. Like, it could be on or it could be off. I, I, agree. I don't I agree mind either that. way. I agree with that, but I don't agree with hatred for it or, di- like, a particular dislike for it because it's it's what it is. But, yeah, I agree with you that it could be on or it could be off. Well, I kind of think that if it's a sound that I can do with or without, then it's probably not a good sound if I... Yeah, I think that it's just a little bit, again, to use the word pedestrian, like, it's, it's sort of by the numbers. Mm. Musically, it's just by the numbers. If you've heard the, the best of Powderfinger, Powderfinger stuff, and you can't create that separation between his solo stuff and Powderfinger, really, when no, that's he's true. sort of trying to continue the Powderfinger sound to a large extent, but without that, that great mix of songwriters there with, with Darren yeah. and Ian Hogg and stuff. Yeah, I listened to it once, and I was sort of felt no compulsion to ever listen to it again, which is a shame. Because <laughs> um, he could do some great things there. I think he's capable of it. Yeah. But... Um, no, particularly the last album. I didn't really listen much to Tea and Sympathy, but um, no, I can't say that the, the most recent solo album grabbed me. But I think that voice could do a lot of great things. He's got a good voice to work with. Though. Oh, I, I, yeah. It's a great instrument. It's really, really um, recognisable, um, great range. It's really nuanced when he wants it to be. Yeah. And it suits it suits a range of stuff as well, like ballads or heavier rock. Well, the off-putting thing for me with that album was the fact that he, he wrote it Working with loops, sitting on a beach in Spain, relaxing off the spoils of the last Powderfinger tour. I'm like, not that I think great art is born out of misery or struggle, but I do think that there might be a bit of relaxation that seeped its way into that album that didn't quite yeah. hit the heights that he was capable of. Hardship definitely helps mm. to a large extent. Yeah. Well, I think with that kind of with that kind of conversation, we're working our way into the 2000s. <laughs> This conversation is getting too long and too epic for one single podcast, so let's put a pin in it, leave it here. Check in this time next week for more Oz Rock with Nick Milligan. Part 2, 2000s and beyond.